Today on Flashpoints, the future of public school education under a Trump presidency. Also, what kind of attorney general will a white supremacist like Jefferson Beauregard Sessions make? And we'll replay yesterday's eyewitness account of Sunday's police attack at Standing Rock. I'm Dennis Bernstein. All this straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. In Berkeley, I'm Dennis Bernstein. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Well, we're going to turn our attention to, well, what's going to happen to public schools under Donald J. Trump as president? And joining us to uh, talk about that is somebody who knows a great deal about uh, the schools in this country. Her name is Diane Ravitch. Uh, Diane Ravitch uh, was uh, a former counselor to the Secretary of Education in 1991-93 and then played a key role in that administration and has been thinking about education ever since. Uh, She is the author of uh, books including Reign of Era, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement, and The Danger to America's Public Schools, and The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Teaching and Choice Are Undermining Education. Uh, Well, it is good to have you back with us, and uh, we we really need to talk about what this system looks like. There wasn't a lot of discussion uh, by any of the candidates in terms of the public school system, particularly the sort of the K through 12 part of it. There was some talk about uh, education after the number 12. But why did you begin by sharing your best understanding of what uh, the vision might be? What what has uh, the president-elect said about schools, uh, the public school system? Um, Apparently, he's a privatizer. Absolutely. Uh, I've been very concerned for a long time about the privatization of public schools. And over the past several years, I've written two books about uh, the charter movement, which I believe was the spear of the privatization movement, and and it paved the way for vouchers. We now have almost half of the states are offering some form of voucher so that uh, parents can take their public money and go to a religious school, which used to be completely off the table. So Trump has uh, come in with a fully pri- pro-privatization point of view. Uh, he, the, he actually knows very little about education. He said he wanted to get rid of the Common Core. Um, and I don't like the Common Core, but I'm not convinced he even knows what it is. Uh, but he's against the Common Core, and he also wants – he said at a press event during the campaign that he wanted to take $20 billion of existing federal money – and turn it over to the states to, to use for choice. And he would favor the states that already had charters and vouchers. So he wants it to be used uh, to privatize public education. He has never said a, one positive word about our nation's public schools, where 90% of the kids, 94% of the kids are in public schools, and he just dismisses them out of hand. It's not important to him. It's not even interesting to him. Uh, and he is interviewing people who will be uh, his agent and and eliminating one of the pillars of our democracy, our our public school system. Well, now, as you said, you were not crazy about uh, what was going on under the Obama administration. They certainly weren't shy uh, about their expressions and their belief in uh, privatization, various forms uh, with funny names like choice and all that. But what do we know about the, the, you know, Trump is obviously not the one who's going to decide, 
you know, the exact policies. So what do we know about who he might pick, who he's been hanging out with? What should we know about that? Do we have any ideas? Well, the, the people he's been interviewing for the post of Secretary of Education are people who are committed to school choice. Uh, some of them uh, have raised hackles on, uh, amongst his people on the far right because they support the Common Core. Uh, for instance, Michelle Rhee, who is married to the mayor of Sacramento, was interviewed by Trump, and she seems to be very interested. I understand she arrived for her interview in, dressed in red, white, and blue, which I guess would appeal to him. Uh, <laughs> But she was had a very rocky tenure as the chancellor of schools in the District of Columbia, and she was remembered for uh, "You're fired." So I guess Do- uh, Michelle Rhee and Donald Trump would get along very well because they both uh, like this idea of "You're fired." She fired a lot of teachers. She fired a lot of principals. He likes to fire people too. Uh, but she's spent her years since uh, she left D.C. promoting both charters and vouchers. So that makes her appealing to him. Uh, one of the other names that was floated was a woman named Eva Moskowitz from New York City who runs a charter chain um, that gets very high test scores, but it's mostly notorious in New York City for keeping out and pushing out kids who are English language learners, kids with disabilities, and kids who are a problem, uh, you know, behavior problems. So if you push out all the kids who have low scores, you end up getting high scores. But she decided uh, no one knows if she was offered the job. I suspect she was not, but she announced she wasn't going to take it. But she then gave Ivanka a tour of her charter schools. So, you know, we see all these people who call themselves reformers, but in fact have been part of the privatization movement, uh, kind of flocking to Donald Trump's side. There's no question that he will pick somebody committed uh, to advancing privatization uh, and turning more public money over to private hands. Uh, this has been something that, under the Obama administration, was pushed very hard by uh, Arne Duncan and pushed by now Secretary John King. This, uh, not vouchers, but certainly charters. Um, and yet, just a couple of months ago, the NAACP issued a strong resolution saying it's time for a moratorium on charters uh, because we need to have the same transparency and accountability for charter schools uh, that public schools are subject to. And I think that now that we are going to have, um, got, you know, President Trump, which I, I find myself having trouble putting those two words together, um, I don't think there's going to be any accountability or transparency for charters. And we're going to continue to see fraud and graft and uh, non-educators creating schools simply to make money. Um, and I think it will have the full support of the federal government. By the way, the other person he is considering on his shortlist for Secretary of Education is a woman named Betsy DeVos, who is a billionaire from Michigan, who has promoted vouchers and charters all over the country. Uh, whether she wants to be secretary, I'm not sure, but she has been very active in education issues, always on the side of uh, choice and not public education. He has not interviewed anyone who is a promoter and supporter of our public schools. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, we're honored to be talking with Diane Ravitch. Uh, she is, uh, well, formerly the Assistant Secretary of Education uh, and a counselor to the Secretary of Education uh, from 1991 and 93 under the George H.W. Bush administration. She is now firmly on the side of public schools against so-called choice and vouchers and all the variations on that theme. And in that regard, uh, could you talk a little bit about 
you know, we now have sort of white power administration here. I mean, I don't use that term loosely uh, with somebody like Jefferson Beauregard Sessions uh, to be the next attorney general. He'll get through. Um, we're seeing incredible uh, right-wing advising going on at the highest levels. Uh, racism has always been a, par, uh, a problem in the educational system. How, how do you think this sort of uh, white power policy might uh, play into this? I can't believe I'm asking this question, but it's a real question. I think this is uh, the most unusual time I've ever seen politically in my Life and and I was born in 1938, so the first election I remember was 1948. I have never known an election in my lifetime, starting in 1948, where the candidate who won the presidency was actually appealing uh, to racism and uh, America first and uh, the kind of the most base white nationalist crowd. I mean, I think recently people have been saying, let's stop talking about the alt-right, let's just talk about neo-Nazis. Right. Uh, we had a, a neo-Nazi convention in uh, Washington, D.C. yesterday, and it's just, um, as an American and somebody who's lived a long life, I'm just uh, at, almost in a state of shock. And I think that uh, Donald Trump as president is appointing some scary people. I heard the guy who's going to be his national security advisor said that Islam is not a religion, it's a political movement. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, there are a lot of Muslims who live in this country, and they're very law-abiding, and they love America, and yet uh, they can't be treated as a political movement. They, they're, they're citizens, and many of them are born here. To say they're a political movement, not a religion, is very insulting. Um, and insulting, I think, to our uh, allies, uh, whom we count upon to combat ISIS. Um, and now that Jeff Sessions is Attorney General, this is a man with a long history of uh, racism. Uh, he was rejected when he was, a, um, I guess it was President Reagan who wanted to appoint him to the federal bench in 1986, and a Republican Senate turned him down because of his racist remarks. But more recently than that, as Attorney General of Alabama, he fought against equitable funding in the state of Alabama, uh, and he was defending separate and unequal in the state of Alabama. So this is a scary appointment. This is a guy who's supposed to enforce the laws of the land. And there's a, an unreal quality about all of this, so unreal that I think at any moment I could pinch myself and wake up. This can't be real. Well, um, it, it happens to be uh, flashpoints on Pacific Radio. We're at Daily Investigative News Magazine, and we're talking about the next president of the United States, Donald Trump. And just so we're careful and fair, um, I would like you to say a little bit more of the state of things now as it's being left by a two-term Democrat in terms of public education. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about it, uh, but uh, it really um, hasn't gotten a lot of attention no matter who's president for a long time. And uh, it, it almost feels sometimes like that we don't like our children very much. Very uh, sad to say. I mean, I voted for President Obama twice. I think that he's a man of great dignity and probity, and, and uh, he leaves office uh, as somebody who was a role model for our children uh, and will be replaced by someone who I think we may have to turn off the television when, when he comes on if there are children in the room. So I admire and respect President Obama, and I respectfully say that he was a disaster when it came to American public education. The whole emphasis of his... Uh, time in office 
was on high stakes, promoting high-stakes testing and also promoting charter schools. And we now have almost every state, something like 42 or 43 states, have charter school laws because of the Obama administration. Uh, they pressed that upon the states. They said you, the race to the top, which was the signature issue of Arne Duncan and President Obama, said that you could not be eligible to apply for millions, billions of dollars in federal funding. Uh, they had $5 billion in discretionary money. And they said you're not eligible as a state to apply unless you uh, lift the cap on charter schools and have more charter schools. And you're not eligible to apply unless you're willing to grade your teachers by the test scores of their students. Now, that just made high-stakes testing higher than ever. It just demoralized a lot of teachers. Uh, many people left teaching because uh, they were teaching kids who were English language learners and couldn't get the high scores or the higher scores, or they were teaching children who had disabilities and also could not produce the scores that were expected. And it just put so much emphasis on testing. And at the same time, uh, we had Secretary Duncan uh, going around the country advocating for charter schools. Uh, and in many states, uh, California's one, uh, Nevada's another, Arizona's another, Ohio, Michigan, I could just go down the list. There are absolutely terrible charter schools that have no transparency, no accountability. There are charter leaders that should be in jail and uh, are, and charter leaders who should be in jail and are not. Um, and there's just no oversight. There's public money being handed out indiscriminately uh, mm -hmm. to people who want to start a school, and very little supervision or oversight because it's simply impossible when they ha they don't report to the district, they don't report to the county, uh, they almost don't seem to report to anyone. And this is not the way public money should be spent. I, I think it's important mm -hmm. to bear in mind that of the high-performing nations in the world, none of them have privatized their schools. They have strong public school systems that are equitable, that have the resources they need. And what we've seen in state after state is that public schools are being starved in order to give more money to charter schools. Charter schools are being supported by not only the right wing, like Donald Trump and his compatriots, uh, but also by the Gates Foundation, the Eli Broad Foundation, uh, the Walton Foundation, the most right wing of all the foundations. They are an anti-union movement, uh, 93% of the charters are non-union, and they have very high teacher attrition. This is not the way to go to improve American education. This is the way to go to privatize and undermine public education. Did I hear you say that some of the people who have been movers and shakers in the charter movement are in jail and others should be? Could you tell us who's in jail and who, who you think might belong in jail for their work in this context? The movers and shakers, the people who are behind the charter movement, are not in jail. But there are charter leaders who have gone to jail. Uh, they've gone to jail in California where there were uh, people who ran a charter chain in, in uh Los Angeles were imprisoned for uh, fraudulently spending something like $200,000, and the California Charter School Association defended them. Uh, there's a guy who was a cyber charter founder in, of the biggest cyber charter in Pennsylvania uh, who acknowledged that he had stolen $8 million. He's going to be in jail if he's not there yet. Uh, and there have been story after story from all over the country of charters that fraudulently used the public money that came their way who were prosecuted and are in jail. Uh, but the movers and shakers are people who are uh, promoting this politically. Uh, 
buying legislative seats. You just had an election in California where the California Charter School Association put in millions of dollars in the to legislative races in order to put their their charter supporters in office. And same thing is happening in school board races all across the country where charter supporters are putting in large amounts of money, large sums of money coming from billionaires uh, in order to win over school boards for to uh, promote charters. There were just two big charter issues on the ballot in this last election, one in uh, Massachusetts, one in Georgia. Millions of dollars were spent to persuade people through television to expand the number of charters. In Massachusetts, the people like the Waltons and Mayor Bloomberg from New York, ex-Mayor Bloomberg from New York City, put in 20, over, let's see, $26 million, and the people of Massachusetts overwhelmingly voted against expanding the charter sector because they have enough charters to see that when you open a charter, you defund the local public school. And they, they were not prepared to give up their public school system in order to privatize more schools. All right. And I just want to come back to a very important point. And I guess it sort of intersects with the concern about racism in the schools. Um, the idea of testing and the way in which testing has uh, been put in the in the way, undermining real educational systems that and things that really could take place in the school system by setting aside large amounts of money and time for testing. Um, could you talk about the, the, you know, how that really has to change? You know, wh- why that's testing has not been a good idea, and it's also has a a racist uh, part of it as well. The uh Testing obsession uh, goes back a long way, but it really, really uh, took off with the passage of of George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind Act, uh, which required that every child in grades 3 through 8 be tested every year. Uh, And I, again, have to step back and say we're the only country in the world that tests every child every year in grades 3 through 8. Other countries give a test in third grade, maybe a test in sixth grade, but they don't test every child every year. So by making this requirement, it created this, well, we already had a big testing industry. Now we have a, an even bigger testing industry uh, that's making huge amounts of money by promoting more testing. Uh, even with the change in the law, it's now called, instead of No Child Left Behind, it's been reauthorized, and it's called Every Student Succeeds, which is just another way of saying No Child Left Behind. <laughs> but again, the Congress required that every child every year must be tested from grades three through eight. And that's just ridiculous. It does have a racially discriminatory impact. Uh, standardized tests are based on a normal curve, and the normal curve always means that half the kids are going to be at the bottom and half the kids will be at the top, and that always correlates tightly with income, family income. So we find that the kids who are poor are at the bottom. Uh, the kids who are uh, black and Hispanic are at the bottom. You can see this in the SAT in the ACT and in every standardized test uh, that poor and uh, children and children of color and children with disabilities and English language learners are overwhelmingly at the bottom. The move towards Common Core has accentuated this because the Common Core tests make everything harder. And instead of just a normal curve, the curve has been shifted in such a way that most kids are now failing the test. Um, And legislators respond to this by saying, well, we need to test more. Uh, Now, here's the curious thing about this. Most people in state legislatures across America America couldn't pass the eighth-grade math test. 
but they want more tests, and these are tests that I promise you they couldn't pass themselves. Uh, it's gotten out of hand. I mean, the people who should be writing the test are the teachers. They know what they taught. They should write the test, and they should be trusted to decide whether the children need more or less help. Uh, the tests that we have now are totally useless because no one gets the results back until it's too late to do anything about it. They're, teachers are not allowed to see the answers or how the kids answer, uh, answer the question. They're not allowed to see the questions, and they're not allowed to see how the kids did. So they, they learn nothing from it. All we're doing is creating a massive revenue stream for the testing industry. Well, all right. Well, uh, that's uh, uh, a sort of a troubling note to end on, but it's very helpful, and people need to be thinking about uh, that and the school system, no matter who is president. We really appreciate you joining us. We've been speaking with Diane Ravitch. She's an author. She's a former assistant secretary of education, uh, written a number of books. And, and if people just sort of want to follow your work, what's the best way to do that, Ms. Ravitch? Follow my blog, which is dianeravitch.net, and I have it's a very active blog. I post anywhere from five to ten pieces every day, uh, with a, an incredibly active comment section of people who seem to be obsessed with the blog. Uh, but I would also recommend uh, the two last books that I wrote: uh, "The Death and Life of the Great American School System," how testing and choice are undermining education, and also "Reign of Error: The Hoax of the Privatization Movement," because. It's very important to understand that when people talk charter, they're really talking privatization. And I strongly believe that this country needs to protect and defend and improve its public education system so that there's a good school available to every child, no matter where they live. Thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoints. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Well, what kind of attorney general will a white supremacist like Jefferson Beauregard Sessions make, senator now from Alabama? Well, in 1996, then-Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions was running to replace the retiring Senator Howell Heflin. Sessions was also, at the time in 1996, heading up two investigations in Alabama, an investigation of burning of black churches and an investigation into the alleged voter fraud uh, activities in the African-American community. It appeared uh, to civil rights workers at the time that Sessions was using the voter fraud investigation to cover up the church burning of dozens of churches and to win favor with the white voters in his quest to become the senator from Alabama. Listen to this. Here's from Democracy Now! 1996, June 5th. Listen. Joining us now is Pacifica's Dennis Bernstein who recently traveled to Alabama as part of his work on a documentary for Democracy Now! on the rash of church fires that's terrorizing the African-American community in the South. The latest one just took place two days ago in Alabama, in rural Hale County, a 65-year-old black church burned to the ground. Dennis, welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you, Amy. Why don't we first talk about that church bombing, and then let's talk about Jeff Sessions and what his relation is to the investigation of this, this trend. Well, Amy, that is the Rising Star Baptist Church. Uh, that is the sixth one to burn in Alabama. Uh, since the beginning of the year. It is uh, on the outskirts of Greensboro, 
uh, Alabama, and in fact, it was a um, uh, right in the heart of the the cradle of the voting rights movement. Uh, unlike the other ones, it was not. It was right on the outskirts of the city. Uh, the fire department got there rather quickly, three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and unlike uh, other the other six attacks, the ATF was actually there in a relatively short time. Uh, between eight and ten of them were uh, going through the runes yesterday. Once again, though, uh, they don't really have uh, an idea of the exact uh, motive, but uh, the people in the area, the people in the congregation are convinced once again that this is uh, the Klan white supremacy bubbling up in Alabama. Now, let's talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who it's possible will win the Senate seat of Hal Heflin. Now, a decade ago, Heflin cast the deciding vote on the Senate Judiciary Committee against Sessions' nomination for a federal judgeship. He'd been accused of trying to intimidate black voters by unsuccessfully prosecuting three civil rights workers for vote fraud the year before. Who is this Jeff Sessions? We talked about him a couple weeks ago on Democracy Now! Uh, You had the head of a civil rights museum on who is extremely irate about Sessions, uh, calling him, well, outright a racist. Well, we're talking about Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. Uh, He is the former U.S. attorney from the Southern District. He is from Wilcox County. Uh, He is now the state attorney general. He's the chief law enforcement uh, officer of the state in charge with investigating, uh, among other things, the church bombings. Now, this is somebody who was the 270th federal nominee for a federal judgeship that uh, appeared before the Judiciary Committee. The other 269 were accepted. Mr. Sessions was rejected. He was rejected uh, according to that uh, congressional testimony uh, because, among other things, he referred to the NAACP, the National Council of Churches, and the ACLU as on american and Pinko Kami. He also has said that, uh, he said at one point, I used to think the Klan was all right until I found out some of them smoked pot. Uh, this is somebody who referred to his assistants as U.S. attorney and the uh, Justice Department attorneys as boy. And the voter writing acts, he says, was something that was forced down the throats of people in Alabama. The most compelling problem that he had was this uh, fed, this investigation you mentioned as U.S. Attorney, this voting rights investigation with, in which he went after Albert Turner and others. Uh, this was a 106-count indictment in which nobody uh, ultimately went to jail, but in which Sessions dragged people all over the state uh, 188 miles uh, to Mobile instead of Selma, where the uh, the proceedings were taking place. They had people in their 80s on this bus that was surrounded w- by police to appear before the grand jury. As a result of this uh, intimidation, two of the older people uh, after this routine died, one of a stroke and one of a heart attack. So this kind of policy has gotten Jeff, uh, Sessions, Jeff Sessions in trouble. This has not stopped him from continuing the same policies as state attorney general under the guise of uh, investigating of the churches. He has a voter fraud investigation. He issued a number of subpoenas, or he participated in an investigation that issued a number of subpoenas that were just issued a week before this primary. I've got one of these subpoenas in front of me, and if I had received it, I'd be terrified and afraid to vote. Dennis, uh, 
Dennis, why don't we go to some of the tape of the interviews that you've been doing recently in Alabama? Dennis Bernstein, again, has been putting together a documentary for us on Democracy Now! and the Church Burnings. He is also, by the way, associate editor of Pacific News Service. Why don't you set this up for us? Okay. What we're going to hear is an interview that I did with Ron Nixon of Southern Exposure magazine. He and I have been working on this investigation together. Uh, we have uh, a bit of a piece on this coming up in the Nation magazine. This is Sheriff Prince Arnold, elected five times in Wilcox County. This is majority black county where Mr. Sessions comes from. Uh, by the way, the sheriff has written to Deval Patrick, the head of uh, the civil rights investigating the churches about these kinds of uh, attacks by Jeff Sessions, these uh, voter fraud attacks. The sheriff says he has provided uh, a great deal of material that uh, white voter fraud is existing, yet the Sessions goes after black voter fraud. This is the sheriff talking about four years ago how he provided information to the FBI and U.S. Uh, uh, then U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Sessions that there was a death plot against his life. A death plot, he says, uh, was put together by voices uh, he could recognize. He managed to obtain a tape of the plotters. He says, this sheriff says that Jeff Sessions knows who these people are, and they refuse to act on this possible assassination plot. So this is the sheriff talking about uh, that. When you destroy the churches, you destroy the politics in the black community. You're destroying the soul of the black community. You're doing so much to them when you destroy their churches. That's the only building where all of them have gathered together to build, you know. And, and people know that. There are folks who know our history better than we do, much better than we do, you know, because a lot of us, when we leave here, we forget about our history. But uh, it, it's, it's, it's a form of intimidation. It, whoever is doing this, whoever is, is burning and bombing the black churches need to be called and prosecuted because it's affecting the whole race of people. That's what it's doing. My name is uh, Prince Arnold, and that's A-R-N-O-L-D. Uh, I'm the sheriff of Wilcox County. I was, I'm serving my fifth term as sheriff, uh, going on 18 years. Uh, I was, uh, my family, my father and my grandfather was born and raised here in Wilcox County. I received uh, um, uh, my elementary and high school uh, education here. I graduated from uh, Alabama State University and uh, I'm just back home. I came back home and ran as sheriff, and I've been, I've won five consecutive times. I consider myself a, a community worker, not just a sheriff. I, our communities need so much help, and I, I just go out and do all I can to help in the community. Selective prosecution was one of the main reasons why I ran for sheriff in, in 1978. That has always been a double standard here in Wilcox County and in the South, and probably all across this country. People have prioritized what they want to, who they want to prosecute. And uh, when it comes to voter fraud or anything else, it, it's the same thing. Uh, people have always been 
uh, if certain folks got killed or murdered, uh, there was uh, a very little investigation done. Very, uh, as far as prosecution, it was done on a on a very lukewarm uh, uh, manner. Uh, when it comes to all law enforcement, it's always been a double standard. So we tried to just have one standard. That's what we tried to do over the last 18 years. Uh, every time we have uh, people like Mr. Session and other folks who, who come in basically because of that same group who had that double standard years ago, and, and they were, Mr. Session was summoned here by that group saying that we need to just, just go back to the old practice, as they would say. Uh, uh, and, and that's what he did. He came in and selected a couple of people and said, I'm going to put you all in jail and, 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 and show you all how, how it's supposed to be done. Uh, but we're here. I'm the sheriff, and I'm not going to let it be done. Uh, Mr. Jeff Session, like I did, went to school here. You know, he went to high school here, uh, and uh, he uh, continues to come back here. This is his home, and his family's from here. I'm sure he, like I do, I, I own a couple of acres here. I'm sure he owns property here, too. Uh, people who he finished high school with are the ones who summoned him back here. People who, who we see on a daily basis that hold positions, and I'm sure, in banks and, and stores uh, are Jeff Sessions' uh, uh, classmates. See? And they have continued to communicate with him over the last, like I said, 18 years since he was down there in the Southern District of Alabama. And they have tried down through the years to get him to come back and do these type of things. It's very simple. It's not complicated. That man has personal interest down here to get it back the way it was before I got ran to be, before I got to be sheriff. And you say he has friends and back to the way it was the way it was as in pre-civil rights, as in when Klan types and white supremacists were around? Is that what we're talking about? You, you, know, you know your history well. <laughs> yeah, you know your history well. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, Wilcox counted the, the 1990 census. I think we have 69 point something black, about 70 percent black. They said black folks run during the census time, so it might be more than that. But uh, 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 until I ran as sheriff, to, until I ran for the position, blacks didn't hold a single uh, uh, elected position, not a single one. And people bragged about uh, being able to rule a county. It was something like South Africa, you know, and, 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 and that's... Certain people are not going to be satisfied until it gets back to that, to, to that, to that position, uh, back in that condition. So yes, sir, we're talking about pre-civil uh, rights days. We're talking about uh, uh, where people are afraid to go and vote. We're talking about where people are intimidated to the point where uh, they're just afraid to do anything besides the domestic work. Uh, Alabama has always led the country when it came to being backwards. And, and every civil rights thing, and we're getting ready to send a man to Senate that, that leads the world in being backwards. But we like that. 
You know, we like that. We're normally lagging by 50 years behind here in Alabama. Uh, uh, if you, sh that's that's what we, we're doing. Yes, sir. In regards to intimidation, I understand that uh, you revealed uh, by virtue of receiving information in the form of a tape and other related uh, documentary evidence that there was a plot to kill you. Could you describe, uh, give us some information about that? Um, I received a tape from uh, uh, another law enforcement agency, the sheriff's office. They called me and said, Sheriff, we receive information that there's a death threat on your life. And uh, I've been threatened many times over the last 18 years. Uh, uh, but this particular time, I uh, I called in the FBI, called them in, gave them the tape. They said, what, right where you're sitting now, two agents. And uh, I told them what, what had happened. Uh, it was during the time that Mr. Session was the uh, uh, he was the prosecutor down Southern District of, Al of Alabama, down in Mobile. And I haven't heard anything from them, those agents as of today. Now, I... two years? Oh, it's been longer than that. Been longer than that. He'd been that... He, he was down there. Uh, uh, it was before President Clinton was elected. So he didn't, he didn't leave from down there. Uh... It was before President Clinton was elected. But I haven't heard anything from these people. And I know during the time he was down there, when agents moved, they moved at, when he said, go and investigate whatever. If you understand what I'm saying. Because I've talked to too many of the young people he went to school with, and when I say young, my age. And I couldn't get in touch with Mr. Session to get him up here, but they could. You don't hear what I'm saying. Describe what was on the tape, please. Oh, basically, in detail, it, 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 it talked about, and I know the people who was plotting them. I know the people. Mr. Session knows them, too. He went to school with them. He knows them, too. If he heard the tape, if he had any conversation from, with the agents, I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying that the information was turned over to them while he was down there. That's what I'm saying. Uh, they uh, described uh, uh, where I, uh, in detail where I lived, uh, what type of weapon would be used to kill me, what, where the, the shooter would be standing, and the type of money it would cost to, to get it done. And you provided that tape to the FBI, yes. who will investigate for Mr. Sessions at, as U.S. Attorney at the time. Well, we, Wilcox County is in the southern district of, of the state of Alabama. I'm sure any major crime that being investigated at some point in time, at some point in time, they give that information to the prosecutor. And that is Sheriff Prince Arnold speaking with Dennis Bernstein. Dennis, last comment. I'll tell you, people are going to be running for cover, according to Prince Arnold, if Jeffrey Sessions becomes the next senator of Alabama. People are terrified. And uh, they are very concerned that the church investigation will turn into one more ver black voter fraud investigation. We should watch this race very closely. And Dennis Bernstein, we will. Dennis Bernstein, associate editor of Pacific News Service and co-author of forthcoming piece in The Nation. He is doing a documentary on the church burnings for Democracy Now!
You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We now rebroadcast our eyewitness testimony from Cheryl Angel of the police violence, the vicious police violence uh, that took place on Sunday against the peaceful water protectors at Standing Rock, in which one young woman may actually lose her arm because of police violence. Listen to this. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. Well, we begin with an eyewitness account of uh, yesterday's vicious attack by law enforcement on water protectors at Standing Rock. Uh, We spoke with Cheryl Angel, who was an eyewitness. She's with the Rosebud Nation. You heard us on our our first interview talking about the, uh, the buffalo. Well, she was an eyewitness account, and she shared this troubling account of what happened yesterday in sub-freezing weather with water hoses. Unbelievable. Listen to this. My name is Cheryl Angel. I'm a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. I'm Sinchanku, Lakota. I currently live at Cannonball to support Standing Rock in their efforts to save the water that millions of Americans. Last night, there was uh, one more incredibly violent police action. I'm wondering if you could describe what led up to it, what the protectors were doing, and then say as much as you can about the violence of the police reaction. Um, Yesterday evening, after a day of prayer and ceremony at all three camps, The security attempted to open the bridge by removing the um, burnt-out trucks that the um, North Dakota authorities had put there themselves and had started on fire themselves. Um, And then, and they used that as, they threw smoke bombs in there, and then they used that as a retreat, a a retreating measure. So when the smoke cleared, the burning vehicles that they had left there were all that were there and all of the law enforcement and all of the people had, all of their people had left. But those were left on the bridge. So our security force had tried to remove them from the bridge. And the North Dakota authorities um, then decided to escalate um, their presence by calling in a militarized vehicle um, and... I'm going to say 100, maybe 100 more law enforcement vehicles. There were so many, you couldn't even count them. Um, you need to understand that on the what separates the tribe from the pipeline area that's being excavated is the Cannonball River. At some points, it's about 40 feet wide. At other points, it's only 20 feet wide. But there's a bridge that connects between those two lands and those two boundaries, and that's where the the armored vehicles were, were parked that were already burnt out. So just the the security force trying to remove them from ours, our security people, um, that's what started the encounter. And in terms of what happened, what was the encounter? We understand that a number of people were wounded, hit with these tear gas canisters. We understand that they were using... Uh, water hoses in, in, I guess, 20, 25 degree weather. Tell us more about that kind of violence so people can really, you know, get a human face on what's going on there. I felt like 
I was in a war zone. I had um, been called to a meeting, so I was heading for the meeting. I could hear young warriors, we call them Iapahas, running through the camp saying, everybody to the North Bridge. So everybody answered the call. They got in their vehicles, and they drove to the North Bridge. So both sides of the road had cars facing north. People were walking on the sides of the road. I, uh, the people didn't, of course, the meeting was canceled. So um, I had taken a backpack that the deer, the wildlife used, and I um, entered from between two hills on a, on a deer path. And I walked through the trees up along the fence. And then from that point on, it was, uh, there's floodlights. There was like at least 40 floodlights on the north side of the river about a quarter mile apart along the entire path of that pipeline. So it's like moonlight. It's like daylight on the north side of the river. On the south side, uh, not so much. And people had gathered there. They had uh, they were singing at the front line. They were um, playing uh, music at the front line. They were chanting, Water is Life, Mini Wichoni. When I had got, by the time I had gotten there, um, people were coming back soaked in water, and it was it was really cold out, and the wind had picked up, and truckloads of people with assistance had brought blankets and jackets and water and goggles and face masks. So when you entered the bridge, you could look to your right and pick up a blanket and pick up a goggle and pick up a face mask, and you could walk further to where the um, encounter was taking place. So I kept to the right of the bridge, and I went down to where the razor wire is because it's like a war zone there. I'm not kidding. Um, they have floodlights. They had the uh, tank right centered on the bridge, and there were uh, there was no instructions. They were just they had a water cannon there. I heard throughout the night that they had used seven water uh, fire engine trucks. They they emptied seven of them. It was unbelievable. I didn't think that they would continue to water cannon people. And we asked them, I went to the front line, I said, stop this, please go home. Um, we're here praying for you. We'll find you new jobs. Have faith in us. Stand with us. We're protecting the water for millions. And they didn't listen. They stood behind the barbed wire and they continued to, um, they would lift their rifle and they would pick out, literally pick out individuals in the crowd and they would shoot them. And so water protectors had, um, plastic container tops and they were using those as shields and uh, they were protecting people whenever they could. I was on the front line. I was very, very lucky because um, I didn't get shot. I got maced. I got pepper sprayed. I got water cannon. Um, the force of a water cannon, if you haven't found one, it knocks you off your feet. Um, we had built fires to warm up the people who were soaking wet in that frigid weather. The people were shaking. They were drenched in water and tear gas. Our medics were out there in full force um, doing what was necessary to keep people breathing. Um, people were sharing their um, inhalers for those who couldn't breathe. Um, it was it was unbelievable. I didn't think that... Um, Things would come to this end, but unless Obama stands up, unless people start calling their senators, um, our lives are in danger. You know, not only the water, but our lives are physically in danger. Um, so it, it hurts me to talk like this, um, 
But a call needs to be made. Someone, hundreds of calls need to be made. Our water needs to be protected. We need support up here. We need wool blankets. We need wool clothes. Um, we need to replenish our first aid kits. We need more thermal blankets. We need batteries. Uh, we need uh, jerky. We need, uh, you know, those uh, snack bars that you eat when you're not able to eat a, a hot meal. Um, on thermoses, we need, I think we need hundreds of thermoses because we can't even carry hot water with us anywhere we go. Um, it's, uh, it was just unbelievable. It was the, between being shot with the water and then dodging bullets, um, trying to deliver a peaceful uh, message and stay in prayer. It was hard. I mean, I slid down the hill. I was knocked off the hill by a water cannon. Uh, people picked me up. Um, there was a man standing right next to the military vehicle without any face protection, uh, without any blankets, and he was singing, and he kept singing, and they just kept spraying him over and over. I picked up an army blanket. I covered him up with it. I stood beside him. We sang together. We prayed together. And they still shot at us, and they still maced us, and they still, you know, used the water cannon on, on whoever they wanted to, on everybody that was within their reach, everybody. And the fires that were started to protect everybody, to warm people up, those fires that were set to warm people up because there was no warming station at that site were targeted by the police, were targeted by the water cannon. They wanted to put out the fires that were keeping us warm. They intended on doing it, and that was their intent. They wanted it. We didn't start the fires, only the warming stations. The fires that were started randomly out in the field, those were by the um, tear gas canisters that they were shooting out there. Um, themselves, they, they were shooting canisters at us, um, into the crowd. Everybody at, at one point thought they were trapped on the bridge because lights were coming over from the south of us. Um, those turned out to be our own warriors, our own water protectors, our own vets, our own horse riders to support us. They stood up on the hill on both sides of the bridge on the south end. And uh, we were down at the bottom on the bridge um, up against the razor wire asking them to stop repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. They wouldn't stop. They just kept going. Um, but the thing that really hurt me the most is when they, when they tried to put out the fires that were literally saving people's lives. They were literally targeting them. And so when I had gotten knocked down and was uh, totally drenched in water, I walked over to the fire to warm up. And not, I was only there long enough to empty the water out of my shoes. And then they started targeting the fire. So the protectors put up a shield. And for 30 seconds, they stood there in a continual blast of water. And they were totally drenched. And then the fire, then they all split, and the, the, first the water hit the fire, and there was so much steam and smoke that came out of there. We were blinded, but there were two of us, and I grabbed a, one of those Teflon, Teflon Mylar uh, body warmers, and we stretched it between us, and we knelt down on it, and we held it between us, and we crouched together, and we covered one end of the fire, and we just sat there, and we prayed, and they just... They kept putting the water over us until um, we were completely drenched our, we were again, over and over. And I could hear a young girl when the smoke cleared, she was saying, grab the logs, grab the logs. And so people ran over and uh, they grabbed the logs out of the fire and they ran 30 yards south. 
put them together and started another fire so people could warm up before they were taken to the medic tents because there were hundreds of people who were soaking wet. They weren't dressed in wool. So when I put a call out for, um, for clothing, it's not for any cotton, not for polyester. It's for waterproof um, jackets. And we, there's hardly any waterproof pants at all. Um, so snow pants, um, snow bibs, anything that's waterproof and wool. We need wool sweaters, wool socks, wool gloves, wool jackets. Those are the things that we need right now. And then to replenish, I wish uh, the Red Cross would show up. I really do wish that whoever has power to send the Red Cross over there would do that because we are in a state of emergency. That's, uh, that's how it was on the front line. I'm speaking with Cheryl Angel. Uh, she is Rosebud. She has uh, been standing up at Standing Rock, uh, working uh, with the elders and the youth. Uh, last night was a particularly violent night in the midst of a viciously cold uh, evening, and Cheryl Angel was there. She was an eyewitness, and I let me give you this chance. It's really important. You know, the yeah, you, you sort of hit this very hard, but just to underline it, because, you know, places like NPR and the local police are saying that they had the water there because you all were starting fires and that you were throwing Molotov cocktails. That was the story that was uh, coming out of the police and the local uh, press. You want to talk a little bit more about that? I'm not afraid to call a liar to their face. If anyone's going to post things like that, they should be standing on the front line getting eyewitness testimony instead of just passing on the lies that the sheriff of the North Dakota and the governor of North Dakota and the DAPL are putting out because they are um, taking um, their own words and they're using them against the people to not know the truth. And that should be a crime. I mean, it should be. If I was lying to get people to hurt other people? Um, would I be called a good person? Would I be fit to wear a uniform? Would I be fit to lead a, a uh, state? I don't think so. You know, not according to the values that America claims that it follows. Um, so NPR, um, get on the front line, take your own videos, because you were there. So I would like all these major media outlets to quit re- reprinting lies that are undocumented, undocumented um, statements from the police. All that happened was our security wanted to open that road because it is a public road. And that's what they said to us when we had our vehicles post on it on October 27th at sacred ground. They said, we need to open the road. It's a public road. Move your cars. So why can't we move those two trucks off the bridge? It's a public road. That's how it all started. Those are two burnt trucks. That the military had, that the military forces had placed there themselves, the North Dakota officials put those there, and they started them on fire. And they, before they left, they said, "Please stay away from the vehicles. They they have propane inside of them. They're explosive devices," which of course led everybody to move back from the bridge. And they, they left them there, and then they put razor wire, which is also unconstitutional. You cannot use that type of razor wire. I mean, you only see those in war zones. You don't see them in the United States. But I'm starting to feel like now we're in a war zone. So it's a battle, people. We need bodies up front. 
We need the world to know that water is a precious commodity. It is sacred to natives. Understand, when you understand its relationship to life, you will understand the sacredness, the sacredness of it. And we need your support. We need this economy to stop the, the um, being um, the oil and gas industry. It's not, uh, it's not good for our country. We need to divest from fossil fuels and, and start um, being a leader in the world by um, adopting a green policy and building and getting new jobs for these people who are uh, in the oil industry. Um, thank you for listening to me. My flight is about to leave. I am leaving for ceremony. Um, I'll be in ceremony for four days, and uh, um, I'll be available after four days, if, and things will probably change by then, too. We wish you the absolute best.